The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box. I am live in UBS's headquarters here in London as the company breaks its results for the third quarter. UBS says the overall environment is challenging. They've delivered a 24% drop in net profit, but an improvement in the net interest income and they hope here that they can weather the storm as conditions remain tough in capital markets running into the fourth quarter. We will catch up with the CEO, Ralph Hammers, very shortly. Also in banking, HSBC tops quarterly estimates despite rising impairments as Europe's largest lender sees a surge in net interest income on the back of rising rates. Rishi Sunak becomes the UK's new Prime Minister just days after the resignation of Liz Truss, warning Conservative Party members to unite or die as he rules out early elections. We face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity, and I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together. And Chinese tech extends its plunge on Wall Street, losing $55 billion in a single day as investors issue a skeptical verdict on President Xi Jinping's third term. But the beaten down stocks see signs of relief in Hong Kong. So let's uh, talk a little bit about what's been delivered here by uh, UBS before we uh, move into the rest of our coverage for the business day here, because these numbers are hot off the presses. And at first blush, obviously, there's a, a certain amount of pain here to be felt. The headlines profit before tax in at $2.3 billion was actually down 19%. The uh, net attributable to shareholders down 24% and the revenue line down 10%. But the bank says it is fighting hard in what is a challenging environment and it has benefited from that uplift in net interest income, largely the result, as we know, of the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates and other central banks now getting into the hiking game here. The um, balance sheet Perfectly fine, 15.5% CET1 ratio here. The, uh, the bank also talking uh, a little bit about the net new inflow of money in terms of the um, opportunity. So net new fee-generating assets in at $17 billion. Um, so I've given you the raw numbers. Maybe let's add a little bit of colour and context. Across the various regions, it is clear that the Asia-Pacific client is still deleveraging. They had new money coming in to their various uh, operating divisions in the Asia-Pacific region, but it is clear that money is going on deposit or it is not being put to work in exciting speculative activity in the market. So what that tells you is you've got a much more conservative client at the moment. And it's not just Asia, although the deleveraging in Asia is much more obvious in these numbers. It's happening to a certain extent in EMEA 
and of course in the Americas. But if you want to pick out the uh, geographical region which is the strongest, I would say clearly the Americas at this point, with uh, money still coming into the business and still being put to work. The um, picture as far as the uh, divisional performance is concerned also reflects, I think, that risk aversion around capital markets. It shows up in the wealth management business and it shows up in the investment banking division. Um, strong numbers still, though, in, in the uh, Swiss banking operations and the overall uh, wealth management division um, still delivering here for the bank. But I think the messaging from the bank is that they expect these kind of conditions to continue into the fourth quarter. But as far as they're concerned, they think that uh, UBS can weather this better perhaps than their crosstown rival uh, Credit Suisse. They haven't said that explicitly. I am just uh, imagining that's what they would say if they uh, were um, uh, answering that question directly at this point. But I think they believe also that they have a a strong mandate in the Asia-Pacific region which will continue to bring uh, money into that particular business, even if the clients are going through this process of, of deleveraging. Um, in terms of uh, how, why this matters to you as investors, I think these numbers um, are in line or a little bit ahead of the expectations. The bank also confirming that they will continue with that $5.5 billion buyback at this stage. So, Karen, Juliana, the messaging seems to be very much at this point that the bank is... Um, uh, is, is continuing to deliver, in their opinion, against what I think we all understand is becoming a much harder market environment for everybody. So on that, I'll send it back to you in the studio. And I'll just point out that we are going to talk with the CEO, Ralph Hammers, fairly shortly. So I'll put some questions to him as to exactly uh, how they see uh, 2023 unfolding now that they have a good sense of what this nine-month period has been like. Jeff, I just want to pick up on a couple of those points. It does feel as though it reflects a lot of what we're seeing out there in the marketplace day in, day out. I mean, the frenetic trading that we've had on certain asset classes, foreign exchange, what we've had on some of the yields on stock markets, that was really uh, picked up by UBS in the numbers today as they talk about what the institutional clients are doing versus private clients, as you say, that have hit the sidelines. So it'll be fascinating to see what exactly we're waiting and watching for in terms of a pivot from those investors. Is it the Fed? Is it a clear signal now around what they they're doing on central bank policy. I think the other big factor here was just the complexity that was really coming through, how difficult it is to manage the macroeconomic and the geopolitical side at this stage. Just give us a sense too how the bank steers from here because it felt as though even though they've had some wins when it comes to net interest income that they're still having to cut costs fairly aggressively here to make the numbers look fairly uh, significant to investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the cost income line here, fairly steady at, at uh, 71.8%. Um, I think the, the challenge, is, as we know in this environment, is how do you continue to keep employees happy when their own cost base is rising? And I think they um, would argue that they've done a reasonable job of managing employee expectations around compensation and salary increases. And I think the other um, good news, in a sense, I mean, look, we, we've sat around the desk, haven't we, talk, 
talking uh, quarter on quarter about how um, their crosstown rival Credit Suisse has seen uh, litigation after litigation. Um, they have been forced to pay up uh, fines for uh, previous misdemeanors here. U UBS will be very pleased that it's had a relatively clean phase over the last year. I mean, the shares are still down 8% across the year to date. But I think they'll, they'll be comfortable that they, they, they basically haven't done anything uh, to upset the market and concern the market about potential rep reputational uh, issues. And, and so I think the bank would probably argue, although I'm not sure they'd want to do it very publicly, that they have been a beneficiary as a Swiss bank of the fact that they've had um, very little of that scandal associated with them over the last year or so. Um, there was, of course, the, the French case, but that's, um, I think, largely understood. And uh, we're moving on from that. Um, so the, the, the challenge is, as you point out, how they continue to offset some of that um, fee-generating income weakness that we're seeing as clients reduce their uh, overall speculative activity, both um, the uh, consumer and business client or the institutional client, how they continue to offset, offset that with higher uh, net interest income. Uh, and the bank is arguing that they will do a billion dollars across the course of this year. And as I say, they believe that um, as the ECB and the Bank of England also continues to hike rates here, that they will generate higher net interest income returns from other markets outside of the Americas through the course of 2023. All questions, of course, that we'll discuss with Ralph Hammers a little later. Jeff, thank you very much. And just a reminder that is coming up at 8 o'clock CET, that interview with Ralph Harmers. Well, elsewhere, HSBC's third quarter earnings came in better than expected with profit before tax of $3.1 billion. That's down 42% on a year ago due to rising credit loss provisions and a $2.4 billion impairment charge for the reclassification of its retail operations in France. And let's get out to Emily Tan for more out of Hong Kong. Ems, you've been pouring through this report card. What jumps out to you? Uh, thanks a lot, to Karen. And I just want to point out that you know what these numbers did come in better than expected, uh, but it's not being interpreted uh, very nicely or very welcome by the market. The Hong Kong market coming back from the lunch break, and the shares are traded now down more than three percent. Look at that, forty dollars seventy-five last traded, and we are now at the intraday low. Uh, this comes as the broader Hang Seng Index uh, was seeing a slight rebound following that huge sell down that we had yesterday. So HSBC, the big heavyweight, kicking things off for the banking uh, report cards. We've got HSBC reporting that pre-tax profit of $3.1 billion down more than 40% on year for the third quarter. This does include that impairment charge related to the sale of their French retail banking operations. Revenues declining 3% to $11.6 billion. Net interest margins increasing to 1.57%. The common equity tier one capital ratio of 13.4% and that was down 0.2 percentage points from the previous quarter. CEO Noel Quinn saying that the bank maintained strong momentum in the quarter and delivered a good set of results. The bank retained a tight grip on costs 
That's despite inflationary pressures and remaining on track to achieve cost targets for 2022 and 2023. The bank is focused on executing plans to deliver returns target of at least 12 percent from 2023. And as a result, we can see higher distribution to shareholders with a dividend payout ratio of 50 percent for 2023 and 2024. At the interim, HSBC already indicated plans to revert to paying quarterly dividends and that'll start next year with the payout for the first three quarters to be reinstated at a lower level than the historical quarterly dividend of 10 cents per share. The bank says the outlook on revenue remains positive and has upgraded net interest income guidance for the year to $32 billion and $36 billion for 2023. Also, there has been some changes in the C-suite. Ewan Stevenson will be stepping down as group CFO at the end of the year, leaving HSBC come April. And he will be succeeded by George Alhedary from January the 1st. Back to you guys. Emily, thank you so much for the breakdown of those numbers. The earnings continue to roll in, so let's get to it. Novartis has just published their uh, latest quarterly results, and uh, growth momentum continues at the pharma giant. The group has confirmed their 2022 full-year guidance. In terms of sales for the quarter, Q3 sales grew 4% in constant currency, down 4% when you look at it in USD terms. Uh, core operating income grew 5%, again, down 4% in USD terms. In terms of the strategic focus of Novartis, the major news of the last three months or so was out in August that Novartis intends to separate the Sandoz business, their generics business, to create a standalone company by way of a 100% spinoff. Today, they said the intention to separate Sandas um, is on track, and Novartis with this will become a fully focused pure play innovative medicines business. Um, so those are the key takeaways. The group guidance confirmed at mid-single-digit sales and core operating income growth for 2022, and they are sticking with plans to separate that generics business. Uh, more earnings coming through. Uh, you know, you get that question, do you want the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I take it Novartis may be the good news. Right. <laughs> but also, we're buried in uh, numbers today, SAP. I'm just pouring through the numbers. There's a lot of good, and some of this around the revenue numbers. They've come through at 7.84 billion euros. That is from 6.85 billion previously. Cloud revenue at 3.29 billion from 2.39 billion euros previously. So going up in terms of these key metrics, the um, software licenses, again, we've seen this transition towards cloud away from software licenses, which uh, they're trying to wean themselves off. Those uh, revenue from those licenses fell to 406 million euros from 657 million euros previously. In terms of what we've got though on uh, some of the numbers on the operating profit for the quarter, this slipped to 2.09 billion from 2.1 billion previously. So that is falling. The operating margin also declining to 26.7 from 30.7. So a little bit of good, a little bit of bad here in terms of the direction for these numbers. Also in terms of the outlook, uh, you've got uh, the company reinforcing uh, what it expects for the operating profit for the year of 7.6 billion to 7.9 billion euros. The range cloud revenue seen between 11.5 to 11.85 billion. However, free cash flow, that's just been tweaked slightly. Uh, roughly 4.5 billion euros is where they see that free cash flow versus more than that number previously. So a little bit of change, a little bit of tweaking there. In terms of the CFO, he's been speaking this morning saying well, they see accelerating revenue growth, uh, double digit operating profit growth in 2023. So just tackling that operating profit growth number, which is a little bit light on. And uh, it is also talking about uh, acceleration momentum across 
all key cloud indicators. I think there's one view out there in the market that perhaps cloud revenue is not resilient in a recessionary environment, that it too can be impacted. But questions we will have with the CEO of SAP, Christian Klein, that first on CNBC interview coming up at 7.40 CET. Well, it's not only earnings in focus today. Politics still front and center coming up on Squawk Box. Second time lucky. Rishi Sunak wins the race to replace Liz Truss as Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister in the second leadership contest this year. Meanwhile, for more on today's big earnings reports from UBS and HSBC, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Former UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak has won the race to replace outgoing Prime Minister Liz Truss as leader of the Conservative Party, beating rivals Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson. Sunak is expected to give a speech outside Downing Street later this morning after meeting His Majesty the King at Buckingham Palace. Sunak faces a grim entry. UK inflation is at uh, double-digit highs. The Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has warned tax rises and public spending will be required to plug a multi-billion hole in public finances. And his party is polling at record lows against the opposition Labour Party after months of instability. Sunak said he would work day in, day out to serve the British people. The United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity, and I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together. I think what jumped out to a lot of people yesterday was just how staccato that was. It was very much uh, as though Sunak was in a straitjacket uh, speaking to the public in his first outing there as Prime Minister. It was pretty, um, it, it was captivating looking through the Twitter response to Rishi Sunak's first address. Um, he's not one for ad-libbing, but certainly in this role, I think that first um, speech will put pressure on him to do a little bit more, soften up a little bit. Um, and, and one of the criticisms he's faced before, I think, is a lack of gravitas, the lack of being a, a leader who's able to muster up uh, inspiring words. And this first glimpse was certainly a little bit on the stilted side. The thing we were pointing out, I think, in the lead up to the race was that we needed someone with expertise to tackle the market, to tackle all those mounting concerns about UK assets and uh, just what was coming in terms of the next budget. But the other factor here in the backdrop has always been, is this a man who can win the next election for the Tories? And as you point out, that first address so lacked the charisma. So it's going to be a fairly steep learning curve, I've got to say, in the next few months. Well, at least he was able to unite the Tory party, which was um, proving an incredibly difficult task, but perhaps uh, because of that looming uh, possibility of calls for a general election ramping up even further. So the um, Tory party finally uh, coming together and Sunak now dismissing opposition calls for a general election, telling his party it needs to, quote, unite or die as he becomes the second prime minister in a row to be appointed without a national 
ballot. Bank of England Deputy Governor Dave Ramsden has told Parliament he, the bank is in talks with the Treasury about the upcoming Halloween budget. Ramsden told lawmakers particular attention is being paid to upcoming support for energy bills. It comes after the bank was not briefed about September's mini-budget, which of course caused turmoil on the markets. Arabile joins us now with more. Arabile, the news came earlier than expected yesterday, delivering uh, the big news that Rishi Sunak will become our next prime minister. What can we expect in terms of his uh, first days and weeks governing? And what can we expect for that, uh, that Halloween budget? Is it likely to remain the key day? And is Jeremy Hunt likely to remain chancellor? Yeah, Juliana, those are all permutations and questions, I suppose. We'd love to just ask Rishi Sunak as he, of course, steps up to the plate, then steps up to 10 Downing Street, where he's uh, set to then deliver what is effectively his second address, right? That first one lasting less than 90 seconds then, uh, just as he was announced then to become pretty much the 57th Prime Minister of the UK and the third Prime Minister in pretty much seven weeks. So uh, kind of a... a, a clear decision then from him that he'd like to create stability unity and while a lot of the party did effectively come back to rally behind him of course there were still detractors among uh, those MPs as well who may not necessarily uh, uh, agree with uh, the ways he would love to do things who don't necessarily believe in how his economics uh, may necessarily help of course uh, tax cuts uh, weren't uh, necessarily the the way to go but he is looking to raise taxes uh, in one element while also cutting spending on the other side. So how do you balance out that growth agenda while at the same time uh, looking to appease the people who didn't necessarily vote for you as well? Plus the markets, of course, uh, looking at all of this with uh, interest uh, as well. So a whole lot of questions, as you said, pointing towards that October 31st medium-term fiscal plan. Will Jeremy Hunt be the one to deliver it? Is, uh, I suppose, first port of call. If he's calling for stability, chances are that Jeremy Hunt will stay in place uh, for that at the very least. What comes into that medium-term fiscal plan, though, is also going to be quite important. Is it his medium-term uh, medium fiscal plan, or is that, or is that the Liz Truss uh, medium-term fiscal plan as well? So such key and relevant questions, and some of the elements he's going to have to try and quickly unpack. The decision for him to be prime minister coming slightly early was probably beneficial, because then it gives him a little bit more time as we head towards that October 31st uh, medium-term fiscal plan. Arabile, thank you very much for running us through the latest there from Downing Street. I've got to say, uh, since it come on financial markets on the back of this uh, UK decision now around Sunak, and you could see that uh, having an effect stateside as well, markets there are closely eyeing what was playing out here and some dysfunction we're witnessing on guilt markets requiring that central bank intervention. But uh, very much uh, a day to the upside. Uh, we're in earnings season, of course. So it was a fairly decent build for the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ. Worth noting, Microsoft, the big driver for all three major indices right on the eve of its earnings. This says a lot of investors expect a fairly mixed bag impact from lower PC sales, but a higher impact from cloud revenue. So it was uh, fascinating to see that action in the trade. Also just worth noting the various sectors, banking names gaining second positive session as well. But it was healthcare that really led the charge yesterday versus other areas of the market that underperformed, such as materials that actually tracked in a negative uh, trade. But uh, one of the other big features for investors was the amount of money ripped up in Chinese tech names, uh, billions of dollars worth of value lost stateside, but also in China on the back.
back of the news that uh, President Xi Jinping had secured a third term in office, or third term as the uh, head of the Communist Party, and this as he stacked the Politburo with his own allies. The market thinking this puts the state very much uh, centre stage versus the private sector, and it was tech that uh, saw the brunt of the selling. The ADRs, as you can see, versus uh, how these stocks are trading on the Chinese markets, 12.5 down on Alibaba in the States, currently today 3.7 up. But uh, this on the back of what was the day of selling yesterday, and you can see Pindadao 24% down, 13% off JD.com, 12.5% off Baidu. All of these trades trying to claw back some lost territory on markets today in the Asian session. And the yuan also on the back foot as the market digested the political maneuvering. And you can see that remains the case this morning. Greenback has the dollar is king. Six tens up versus yuan. Uh, and on the onshore market, offshore, about a tenth of a percent higher. To the Asian markets more broadly, this is how we are progressing throughout the trading day. We are mostly firm at Chinese stocks also trying to participate in that rally. Not a huge amount on that Shanghai composite versus modest gains on Australia, a decent uh, third of a percent on Hong Kong. We're, of course, looking at a lot of bank earnings there. HSBC as well, 1.1% pop on Tokyo stocks. Uh, that is uh, the strongest signal we're getting out of the region. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.